Hey everyone, hope the week wasn't too brutal because today's case is not going to be easy to hear. Hello everybody. It's Abby and Daniela back again with Gimme the Creeps and our true crime case is very dark so that's going to be warning number one. Um, It's just a very sick and twisted and spoiler alert, satanic panic had a rightful place in this rare occurrence. So I'm cutting right to the chase. Last time I told y'all about Colleen Stan, who survived horrific crimes against her for seven years. The crime was part of the inspiration behind the song Jennifer's Body by Hole. Again, music will play a major role in a few ways in this episode. Before we jump headfirst into it, I wanted to give some trivia on the film to give it some more appreciation before we get into some really dark shit. So yeah, Jennifer's body. I just rewatched rewatched it all and then I rewatched it for the specific scene that we're going to be discussing today. Um, I needed to have watched it before too, damn it. Oh yeah, you're going to want to after after hearing this, that's for sure. Uh so I'm going to head on over to Screen Rant and this is my first time reading this trivia. It's from 2018, so I wonder if there's anything on here that we don't know. Starting with number 20, it's 20 things that we didn't know about Jennifer's body. Blake Lively almost played Jennifer. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Me neither. I kind of wonder what the, why, how. Uh, It says, before her lead role on the CW's Gossip Girl, Blake Lively began her acting career on the big screen. Her performance in The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants launched her career. So what would what would I don't get it um surprisingly lively almost took a major turn from her usual roles to play that would be a bit darker granted gossip girl overflowed with scandals and drama but playing the lead as a demon would certainly catch some attention though initially considered for the role in Jennifer's body lively had to turn it down due to filming conflicts with gossip girl ew she almost was she oh turned my, it down. I can't. I can't see it. She's not. Yeah. No hate against Blake. No. But no. No. She's just. I can't. It's see wrong it. to me. I can't either. Maybe needy. Like maybe needy's character, but even I then, I think Amanda. Uh, I know Cyfred. Cyfred. I think she did a great job too. Yeah, I think she did a great job. I can't picture anyone else in those two roles. So I can't either. Megan um, Fox was like the perfect, right? Especially because uh, I think I said it on one of the episodes <laughs> about her being a demon. <laughs> oh yeah, um, I would believe that she could. She could potentially be a demon. I mean, she just knows how to own her power. Yes, I don't know. It's, yes. it seems that way. Uh, I can't really name anybody else who's like that. Maybe Nicole Kidman. Uh, she, like she owns her sexual prowess, you know what I mean? Yeah, Especially but I still roles. can't see her being. No, not to play the role of it, but I just mean like any other oh, actresses oh. that compare to like the energy that Megan Fox brings. Oh yeah, okay. The screen. I can, see that. Mm-hmm. Um, can you think of any examples? No. Um, uh. Uma Thurman, only because of Kill Bill. Okay, Kill Bill. Yeah, I could see that too, though. Okay, well, cool. Um, But yeah, for Megan Fox's age group and I guess Jennifer Check's uh, character's age, Megan Fox was the best decision. Um, 19, director Karen Kusama didn't know who Megan Fox was. Oh. 
What the hell? Although she became quite popular thanks to the Transformers movie, Jennifer's body director had no idea who she was. She told, Megan was attached when I read the script and I actually knew nothing about her. I had not seen Transformers in the theater and had chosen not to do that. Whoops. 18, Megan Fox's extreme transformation for the role. Actress Megan Fox maintained a relatively low-key acting career in the beginning. On TV, she played roles on What I Like About You and Two and a Half Men before securing a regular role on Hope and Faith. On film, she did teen comedies like her role as Carla Santini in Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. Oh my God, I called her Michaela. She plays a Michaela, does she not, in another movie? That sounds very familiar. Oh, duh, Transformers. Hello. That's her name in Transformers? Yes. So, I, yeah, so I got confused. So Carla oh, is – so my bad in the last episode that I, I did that. I not remember her name in Transformers at all. <laughs> she became well-known for her stunning looks and body with her image plastered on magazines across the country. However, her role in Jennifer's body, Fox decided to get prepared for the part with drastic weight change. Although usually curvy, she dropped 97 pounds to prepare for her role. Fans were happy to hear that she regained the weight for the Transformers Revenge of the Fallen sequel. Hmm. Hmm. 17. It was supposed to be way darker. The original focus of Jennifer's body leaned more toward the horror genre. The plot itself surrounding a teen girl being possessed by a demon could have been expected to take a scarier route similar to The Exorcist. However, Cody found that the more time she invested in the scripting, the more the plot shifts into a new director. In an interview with Coming Soon, she said, When I first set out to write this, I intended to write something very dark, very brooding, a traditional slasher movie. And when I realized about a third of the way into the process, I was incapable of doing that because the humor just kept sneaking in. I have a macabre sense of humor. With the newly found humor in the plot, she then included more dark comedy elements in the script. Hmm. 16. The kiss wasn't a publicity stunt. When recalling the original promotions for the movie, many audiences remember the kissing scene between Jennifer and Needy being featured. Although the studio felt the need to promote this scene to entice audiences to see the movie, the scene itself held more meaning. As reported by The Frisky, Cody had no intentions for the scene to be a publicity stunt. She stated, It was intended to be something profound and meaningful to me and to Karen, the director. There is a physical energy between the girls, which is kind of authentic because I know when I was a teenage girl, the friendships that I had with other girls were almost romantic. They were so intense. I wanted to capture that heightened feeling when you get as an adolescent that you don't really feel as a grown-up. Interesting. That is interesting. Hmm. 15, the practical effects. The production team of Jennifer's body decided to take a different route for their special effects to transform Fox into a man-eating demon. Their team decided to move away from numerous CGI effects and incorporate more tactile sources for their effects. For example, the black vomit scene utilized chocolate syrup for the effect. That was gross. That was a good scene. Yeah. Uh, Fox recalled, we did a few takes where I would just do this scream and sort of puke Hershey's chocolate syrup and then special effects did a rig that clamps onto my ear and you revisit it in the pool scene. She further detailed that the device clips on. It goes around the back of my ear and then I bite down on it in the side of my face like this and it projectiles. It's a tube. Very creative. I didn't know that. I thought it was computer stuff. I don't know how they are able, like in any movie able to do like shit coming out of their mouth because I would genuinely like throw up. Oh, because you have to taste it? I know. Even if it's chocolate, I feel like I'd be like, ugh. Yeah. Like I would just – the motion of having to look like I'm throwing up is would – <laughs> It would up. make you actually – and with anything in your mouth, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. 14, the movie was made into a musical. Over the years, no. Jennifer's body 
has gained in popularity with fans bringing it to an admirable cult status. The dark humor, witty dialogue, and female-driven cast has led to the film uh, has led the film to new audiences and future fans. In particular, the movie found new life on Broadway. The film has been made into an authorized musical aptly titled Jennifer's Body, the unauthorized musical from hell. Hmm. I feel like I might have actually known that now that I'm thinking. Yeah, uh, I feel like we might have touched on it last time. The musical, which began its run back in March of 2018, the cast, the cast included Pitch Perfect Shelley Regner, former Glee star Lindsay Pierce, and Matt Shibley from The Real O'Neills. It ran throughout the month of March at El Cid in Los Angeles. The adaptation was created by jo- Jordan Ross, who has also created musical versions of The O.C. and Cruel Intentions. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. That's funny. I guess I would see that. I, I mean, I didn't expect to like Wicked as much as I did. I haven't seen it. That is the on- the first and only musical I've ever been to. And I guess being like at a performance is different too than just watching a musical, if that makes any sense. Because I don't watch very many of them either. Yeah. Um, so that makes a difference. Uh, 13, the screenplay was blacklisted. One of the hardest steps to making a movie in Hollywood is getting someone else to believe in your dream. You might have the best writers, best producers, and a great cast in mind, but without the right studio to finance you, there's nowhere to go. Many writers suffer from having their scripts passed from studio to studio with no takers. Though the process itself has become the norm in the movie industry, some members of the inner circle have taken to bringing attention to those exceptional homeless scripts. The Blacklist prides itself in highlighting some of the best scripts available that have yet to be made. In 2007, the script for Jennifer's Body was included alongside Zombieland, World War Z, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Those are all hits. So, iconic. Mm. Um, The canceled sequel. Okay, this I have never heard of. Before the critics had gotten to view the film, plans were in place to build Jennifer's body into a possible franchise. With its unique premise and confident production team, early talk occurred surrounding a possible sequel. Originally reported by FearNet, Kusama revealed the film could have had a continuation based on the film's original plot. She stated, We actually just had a very brief exchange about this topic while we were in Toronto. If there was a way to make a sequel that was as fascinating and strange as the first movie, I personally would be interested. Sadly, the harsh criticisms and the low box office profits of the original film have nixed the possibility of a sequel. Hey, that might change. Who knows? I don't I don't know how I'd feel about a second one though. Right. What if they did it to where they had the band? Uh, it was like a prequel. Like they discussed the band, maybe and like other girls or something. I don't know. But I have no idea. They I barely made um. They barely made the orphan. Uh, the Apparently other one. That one wasn't good though. Damn it! I was looking forward to that. The first That's one was so favorite. good. I had just seen the first one last year, and I was like shook. Yeah, apparently this new one wasn't great. Plus that it was a prequel and she's older now than she was when she made the first one, so. Yeah, but she's still, well, everybody, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, 11, there was a Jennifer's Body graphic novel about her victims. Besides the sequel, the production team for Jennifer's Body had other plans to expand the universe of the film. One of the ventures included a tie-in comic book for the franchise. In an interview with Atomic Comics creator 
Rick Spears and Tim Seeley and Jim Mafood gave more details about the publication. Spears explained, the book is a tie-in, not a direct adaptation of the movie. So in the comic, we take a closer look at some of Jennifer's many victims. We get to meet these guys and see more of their lives before they are ultimately dispatched. And with comics, we can get into the characters' heads in a way that works well in comics and novels more than in film. Each story followed a different victim and provided their backstory prior to their final consumption. I guess that's only fair. Wow. Number 10, Courtney Love hated the movie's title. Jennifer's body ran into a unique conflict when whole singer Courtney Love took to social media to vent about the film. The title of the film took its name from their song, Jennifer's Body, a track, yes, yes, we went through this. Although their song, Violet, was used at the ending credits, the lead singer was not satisfied. She took to Twitter to engage in a very long rant with, well, everyone. Her original tweet set off the conversation stating that Hull has never been mentioned by Diablo Cody at all, even though she provided a song and a title for 10 cents. <laughs> Number nine. <laughs> I know. Um, number nine. Adam Brody blamed the film's failure on marketing. Who didn't? Uh, after the film's lackluster debut, uh, star Adam Brody voiced his concerns about the promotions for the film. As reported by Vulture, he said, I don't know what happened and I don't know if anything could have changed anything or if the was the path that it was going down no matter what. I'm happy people are finding it on cable or whatever they're finding it. But I do think it should win a Razzie for worst ad campaign ever. Seriously, it was such a good opportunity for a cool trailer or poster, and it was like a Goosebumps R.L. Stein poster. Oh, my wow. God. Wow. Way to shit on R.L. Stein. Anyways, in the end, the film, although made an ex- to expand to- on previous notions of male-driven horror stories, was still marketed at male audiences. Number eight, the film is a follow-up to Juno. The independent movie Juno certainly took audiences and critics by surprise. Filled with witty dialogue, relatable characters, and an outstanding cast, the film became one of the indie hits of 2007. Amen. The film went on to earn numerous award nominations, including four from the Academy Awards. Screenplay writer Diablo Cody even won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. The partnership between Cody and Juno director Jason Rittman proved to be so profitable that they rejoined forces later on. Jennifer's Body became their follow-up project after Juno. Cody resumed her role as a writer for the film, with Rittman taking on the producer position. Considering the success of Juno, expectations were high for the team to duplicate the success of the first film The first film for Jennifer's Body. Hmm. Number seven, the crazy marketing tactics that were dropped. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's what I mentioned before. Oh, yeah, they were going to do live chats on an adult performance site. Uh, Megan was going to, you know, pr- promote the film. Yeah, that's weird. That is such a weird – yeah, it's weird. Um, Karen Kusama said, was like, I'm begging you not to go to her with this idea. She will become so dispirited. It was fascinating to have the writer be female, the director be female, and the stars be female, and my head executive be female, and then we get to the top of the mountain, all those male marketing people – it was crushing. Ugh, that must have been so annoying. Number six, reviews of the movie were split based on gender. Another interesting aspect about the release of the film lies with how the film was critiqued. We published an article back in 2009 that revealed the individual reviews of the movie critics split based on their gender. Writer Vic Holderman revealed that there were many more reviews by men, 77, than women, 26. Here's the breakdown. Male movie reviewers, 39% liked it, 61% disliked it. Female movie reviewers, 54 liked it, and 46 disliked it. Hmm. What the fuck? Yeah, that's interesting. At least 54 uh, women, 54% liked it. 
um, the criticism of the movie were different between men and women. Men focused on how the film failed to be both funny and scary, while women spoke about girl-on-girl friendship and particularly on showing just how cruel women can be to each other. Unfortunately, the film's success suffered due to the poor marketing and panning. Yes, we know. Um, These are not as entertaining as I thought, but we're on number five, Juno Connections. Although these two movies share minimal similarities, quite a few connections exist between Juno and Jennifer's body. Looking beyond the Cody Reitman team-up, the creation of both scripts took place around the same time. As such, the two films share similarities in their dialogue style. Cody explained to Sci-Fi that I had actually written it a long time ago when I was kind of in that same mode, so it definitely has that kind of high school dialogue heavy feel to it. But there's also people being eaten a lot, so that's changed. In addition to the similarities to the script, the horror film also included several familiar faces from Juno, including Valeria Tian, Aman Jahal, and J.K. Simmons as part of the Jennifer's Body cast. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. A negative script review got banned. Hmm. In 2008, two different sites provided their reviews based on the early script but with varied opinions. Big Ross from cc2k.us found issues with the script and presented a somewhat negative review. Adweek reported that Big Ross dwells forever on the language and doesn't touch the structure, plot, arc, etc., which makes us think that this must be an early draft untouched by any collaborative efforts. On the other hand, Diablo Fan offered his opinions on the script to the Latin review in a more positive light, though he did share some criticisms. However, cc2k.us received a cease and desist order from Fox Searchlight to remove their review from their website. Their site was only one to review such an order. Interesting. Yes, we know. Number three, the movie was widely misunderstood. Cody shared... Kusama and I are both outspoken feminists. She said, we wanted to subvert the classic horror model of women being terrorized. I wanted to write roles that service women. I want to tell stories from a female perspective, and I want to create good parts for actresses where they're not just accessories to men. In addition to bringing new perspectives to the genre, Cody also explained that a key reason for writing the film was to bring to the screen a new way of expressing the intensity of female bonds. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Ooh, here it is. The truth behind Jennifer and Needy's friendship. While writing Juno, Cody used many details from her own life and added added it into the script. Although she could not personally relate to the themes of adoption and pregnancy, she did manage to add her own personal elements to this film, including the uh, hamburger phone and tic-tac-loving guy from her past. In contrast, the elements of Jennifer's body contain very little autobiographical elements of Cody's own story. However, Cody does have some emotional connections to the film. She shared that the friendships that I had as an adolescent had this unparalleled intensity. I wanted to show how almost horrific that devotion can be. It's almost parasitic. Regarding the characters, Cody felt more of a connection with Needy, explained that she was never an alpha female and I've never gotten off with being with bullying other people. Number one, the film premiered at the 2009 Toronto International Film Festival. Many directors have chose to take the film festival route when it comes to movie premieres. Positive buzz can be started at such festivals, leading to early reviews of the movie that positively affect box office performances. Cody's first film, Juno, appeared at many festivals, including Telluride Film Festival and Toronto's International Film Festival, where it received a standing ovation. In fact, the film was included in more than 10 additional international film festivals. Given Cody's experience going this route, it was no surplus that 
Jennifer's Body took a similar path with its premiere as well. Audiences and critics got their first glimpses of the film at the 2009 Toronto International Film Festival. However, as MovieLine pointed out, Toronto was a nation removed from the audience where the film's actual momentum had been occurring for at least a month. And that's that. I will say the trivia is probably much more enjoyable on Amazon Prime. Have you ever used that? Whenever you're like watching a movie, you can click. Yes. And it gives and it you gives little you tidbits in each, from each scene. Yeah. yeah. As you go. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Um, I was going to do that, but then I thought, I was like, eh, let me trust this screen rant. But that seemed like a big waste of time. Sorry, guys. Boring stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I had never read that before. There were a few little interesting things in there, but for the most part, we knew what was going on. So now that the movie discussion is over, let's get into the crime behind the script of Jennifer's body. Yes, let's hear it. Hopefully you won't uh, mind some in-depth discussion of certain scenes, whether you've seen the film by now or could care less. The hardest scene to watch is, of course, the ritual scene. It's probably the only time um, that even the humor in it doesn't stop you from feeling uncomfortable as Jennifer squirms and struggles and begs for her life. So in the movie, Low Shoulder is a self-proclaimed up-and-coming indie band that dream of breaking it into the mainstream. Uh, they visit the local bar, I think it's Melody Lane, to perform for the people of Devil's Kettle. And when Needy asks, why would you come out here? He says, even the shittier areas deserve to hear them. So while doing this act of charity for Devil's Kettle, the band is actually scoping out a virgin among the small town people to sacrifice to Satan for stardom. Here's where I'll plug our Faustian Bargain episode titled Music and the Devil. Go back and check that out where we discuss. Oh, shit. Look at yeah, that you. was that was fun. That was a fun little episode. Uh, if yeah, y'all haven't was... heard that, uh, go check that out because we've discussed mu uh, music and the devil before. Anyway, so Jennifer is wanting to attract the attention of the singer played by the handsome Adam Brody. His name is uh, Nikolai Wolf. So. Is that his party. name in there? Yes. Yes. Nikolai Wolf. That's what's yeah, so hilarious. I didn't um, or I didn't remember guys, that. Guys are probably like, that is so cool. And women are over here like giggling because that's part mm. of the joke. <laughs> anyway. So Needy warns Jennifer they are creeps and overhears them discussing Jennifer being a virgin whenever she goes to get those 9-11 shooters. That was a good little touch. Um the red, white, and blue ones that turn brown if you don't drink them fast enough. Anyways, uh -huh. so she's going, she's, you know, going to get those drinks and Needy overhears the band discussing, you know, is she a virgin or not? They assume she is and they think that she's just a tease who actually has never done it before. So uh, Jennifer chimes in with, what? I'm not even a backdoor virgin thanks to Roman. And that's and, uh, by yep, who happens to be played by a young and goofy Chris Pratt, lol. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so she isn't. She is not a virgin, but Needy had come to her defense saying like, yeah, she is. Leave her alone. But she's not. And Jennifer's like, I'm not. Why would you say that? But anyway, so sorry, sorry, I'm stalling because this episode is not going to be a fun one. Anyway, so the band starts playing and all of our favorite song goes, you know, it's, it's honestly, it's good. I'm not fronting it through the trees, puts Jennifer in a trance. And so it begins a fire burns the bar down and the girls escape with Jennifer deciding to go with the band in their creepy van. Needy gets home 
And uh, Needy gets home and calls her boyfriend hysterical and worried about Jennifer. And she calls the van an 89 rapist when Chip asks the make and model. She's like, I don't know, Chip, an 89 rapist? Okay. <laughs> so Needy is freaking out. She knows in her gut that something's wrong and she was right. And trigger warning begins now. There's going to be some pretty dark uh, violence in this So we don't see what happened to Jennifer check until a little over an hour into the film. And by now she's, you know, she's eaten a few boys to satisfy her insatiable hunger. So we have no idea what happened that night. She tells needy what happened after a hot makeout sesh, which there was an entire sex scene that ended up not being in the film. Did you know that? Oh, good. I'm glad. That would have been I'm glad. Yeah. I'm kind of glad that because they didn't go into their relationship enough to, have that be called for, you know? Yeah. Anyways, but there are some queer um, underlying messages in, in this movie. But anyway, so she's making out and then she's like, what happened that night? Cause remember, you know, Jennifer gets to needy's house. She's covered in blood and she throws up black shit after trying to eat that uh, Boston market chicken out of the fridge. Yeah. Um, she's like, that's my mom's. And she just like growls <laughs> and keeps eating. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Okay. So, uh, Jennifer had tried to run after saying that she was a virgin. I guess she was thinking that it would turn them off of whatever they had planned to do um, after they got out of the van. She is gagged and tied while Nikolai begins reading from a ritual that he printed out um, from the internet. <laughs> he says, do you know how hard it is to make it as an indie band these days? Satan is our only hope. She offers to help them if they let her live, but he says no. But maybe she they'll write a song about her, and that would be pretty cool because she's a fan, right? That's literally how he says it. It's it's unnerving how Nonchalant smug. He is. Yes, he's like so smug, and only one guy is nervous about this whole thing. Everybody else in the band is like all for it. Yeah. So uh, right before he's about to do it, he taunts her by singing Tommy Two Tones eight six seven five three zero nine, and they all join in. And it's so unsettling. They're just pure evil, just singing while uh, the singer begins stabbing her over and over. Um, We come to find Jennifer has become a demon feeding on morsels, a.k.a. boys. Her lack of virginity might have turned her into a succubus, it seems. However, she doesn't actually have sex with the boys before essentially eating them. So I guess it's kind of unclear supernaturally what's going on there. But I believe it was because she wasn't a virgin that she ended up not dying and becoming this demon. So very cool premise. Uh, Anyway, this is where we begin with the actual true crime behind this film. This is the story of how teen boys killed Elise Paler. Once again, final warning, this is graphic and highly sick and twisted. Now, whether the film took direct influence from this or not, the crime held the same objectives and there are definite parallels between the two. Born to David and Lisanne Paler in Arroyo Grande, California, on April 24, 1980, Elise was their first child. David was a general contractor, and three more kids joined the family throughout the years, and together they had a strong Christian household. Elise loved God, her family, and her friends. She went to Arroyo Grande High School, and she was just doing great. It was fine. Up until this point, Elise is on the straight and narrow, and she loves school and has artistic skills. Um... Enter Joseph Fiorella. He's 14, Jacob Delishmut and Royce Casey, and those boys are both 16. They're kids from the other side of the tracks, as they say. 
Elise became friends with Joseph and Jacob as they rode the school bus together, later meeting Royce, who went to a continuation high school for students at risk of not graduating on time. He had been expelled from school, and this was his only option to graduate. Fiorella went on to be homeschooled after having problems at the public school as well, and Jacob was expelled for drug possession and verbally assaulting teachers. Elise was a sweet and open person, and she didn't see how the difference between she and them would come to be dangerous. Over the years of her family being in the Arroyo Grande, San Luis Obispo area, it had grown and changed. A wastewater treatment plant expansion allowed for growth under the EPA Clean Water Grant, and also Arroyo Grande was under a four-hour drive from L.A., Then it comes to it being the 90s, and we remember a lot of California crime, a lot of rioting, a lot of violence. Elise is 15, and it's 1995. Crimes have picked up the pace during this time, and illegal drug use among the top crimes. Shootings and stabbings were occurring at a higher rate due to gang activity increasing. The boys smoked pot, meth, and experimented with LSD, but most of all, they worshipped the Dark Lord. Now, I'm not here to say what's right or wrong. However, in this rare instance, this detail would come into play a major role. Joseph got the idea to turn things up a few notches. Uh, He asked the older boys if they were interested in the occult. They studied Aleister Crowley and educated themselves, which strengthened their religious foundation. They became familiar with other Satanists and broke into cemeteries, stealing from the dead. The teens became obsessed with heavy metal rock music, specifically death metal. They admire bands like Slayer, a thrash metal band that got together in 1981 and debuted a rushed album in 1983 titled Show No Mercy. Here is where the teens become extra passionate as they created their own death metal band titled Hatred. So this is all wrapped up in uh, the bad boy lifestyle, I would think. These impressionable young men have the hunger for fame and are really taking this dream seriously. It didn't take long for these influences mentioned for the group to get the idea to please Satan in order to gain talent and eventually fame and popularity. Joseph and Jacob, along with another teen, he's unnamed, uh, they took Elise to Nipomo Mesa. It's near her house. Uh, It's like a hiking area. The teens had planned to take Elise's life to satisfy Satan by committing the ultimate sin against God, sacrificing a virgin. Nine miles away from her home, the teens walked with Elise and one slipped down to the bottom of the hill. He called to Elise and she met him down there. Joseph then tossed a knife to the random guy and told him to stab her. He just stood there frozen and didn't attempt to stab her or touch her at all. Elise took this as a prank and never reported it. They took another month to plan their next attempt. July 22nd, 1995, Elise is watching TV with her family when the phone rings. The three boys said they scored weed and they invited her to go out and smoke with them. She lied to her parents saying she was heading to bed. She snuck out and went to the eucalyptus grove out in Nipomo Mesa. They smoked and waited to start their plan. That actually sounds really nice. Yeah, to go smoke in a eucalyptus grove, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, smell it nice? does. Oh, damn. Uh, <laughs> that was good. It was the perfect time. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does sound nice. I would do that too. But with those guys, uh, not so sure. Uh, and I'm, I doubt she's told her parents about these kids because they would have immediately said, you're never going to hang out with them ever. Right. 
So she tells her parents that she's going to bed and it seems really random that they were just all comfortable in the living room watching TV and all of a sudden she's going to bed. So she just says, I'm going to bed and then sneaks out and they go smoke for a little bit. I don't even think the boys even smoked. I think she just might've started smoking and eight months would pass before anyone would learn what happened to Elise. She was never seen after that night. Oh my God. Yeah. So terrifying. So months go by, there's probably, you know, search parties in the spring of 1996, Royce went to the police with what happened. The entire community was shocked, but the crime is one of the worst you'll ever hear. Royce Casey had separated from the other two and become fearful for his life, believing that he would be the next victim due to the falling out. Douglas Odom was chief investigator for the county district attorney at this time. The night went as follows. Elise is lured, lured to the grove by the promise of smoking and hanging out. While her guard is down, Jacob wrapped his belt around her neck and began strangling her. Joseph then takes a hunting knife, stabbing her in the neck as Royce holds her hands. Royce and Joseph then pass the knife back and forth, taking turns stabbing her. As she lay there crying for her mother and praying aloud, they kicked her in the back of the neck and began stomping on her. Oh it's God. unclear how soon they returned to her body or if they waited until she was completely dead, but following this violence, it got much worse. The three proceeded to then sexually assault her. Mm-mm. Worse still, in the months following the murder, they would return to her corpse to have sex with it. What? It's unclear who exactly was doing this, but I, there were times when one at a time would go out there and who knows what they did to her body. Um, some say it was Joseph that went back mostly, but uh, other sources say Jacob was the one that went back multiple times. Oh my God. I don't believe Royce Casey went back because it doesn't state that clearly, but who knows? He might have gone and just not said, not, you know, confessed to it, even though he was the main guy confessing everything that happened. So all those months, her parents had been searching for her ever since after that night, and her name was on the very long missing persons list for that area. Royce had converted to Christianity and confessed to the killing. He was feeling guilty about what they had done. And he led the authorities to her body and said that the other two had planned for more killings. So that March of 1996, her decomposing body was finally found. Forensics reported that she was stabbed at least 12 times. None of the wounds were fatal and she had slowly bled to death. Oh my God. So, like, I, that's where I don't really know if they knew if she was dead all the way once they started assaulting her body or what. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, she slowly bled to death. And Royce was in custody and told the investigators about their sacrifice to Satan, gaining more craziness to play harder, play faster, and possibly become professionals. They asked, why her? They chose her because she was blonde, blue-eyed, and a virgin. They claimed they would claim their ticket to hell. Jacob Delashmit and Joseph Ariella were arrested and admitted to all of it, including their obsession with the occult, but also their claim that Slayer directly inspired them. So they began by blaming the music. And it wasn't too long before the public and her parents began blaming the music as well. Their underdeveloped minds, poisoned by a crystal meth and false ideologies, brought them to their solution. They claimed the driving force was the song Altar of Sacrifice. 
where lyrics read, Waiting the hour destined to die here on the table of hell, figure in white unknown by man, approaching the altar of death, high priest awaiting dagger in hand, spilling the pure virgin blood, Satan's slaughter, ceremonial death, answer his every command. Joseph's mother said her son told her that they had sex with the corpse. One of Joseph's friends said he was bragging to him about doing so as well. Two acquaintances were told about the murder, but dismissed it as lies. Later, Slayer's song, Necrophiliac, is blamed for them having the idea in the first place. The Palers sued the band in 1996, believing that the song, both songs, Dead Skin Mask and Postmortem, provided detailed instructions, but this uh, lawsuit was delayed due to the murder trial still going. Judge Jeffrey Burke dismissed the case in 2001, the case of them trying to sue the band, um, because the lyrics did not direct listeners to act on the violence. They pursued the lawsuit again, this time alleging that the band knowingly marketed harmful material to children. And once again, the judge like disagreed with them, and he ruled that the music wasn't harmful to children, and it was protected under the First Amendment. Good. So the parents are let down by that, but um, all three of the murderers pleaded no contest to the murder. And Joseph, 16, when he was sentenced, and remember he was 14 when he came up with all these wild ideas, um, he received 26 years to life for first-degree murder as part of a plea bargain with county prosecutors where they dismissed other charges such as rape. So he pled guilty in exchange for, for that. And he never denied he was the first to stab her. It was agreed by all of them that Joseph, although the youngest of the three, was the leader. He apparently said in one of the probation reports that he wished it had never happened. Since it happened, he always wished that God could bring her back to life. However, he only seemed remorseful after the sentencing. Royce Casey, although he confessed um, in the very beginning, was believed to have exaggerated the night's events claimed by his attorney. Once the blasphemous details about the case were released, the public could see no other way but to put these boys away for life, regardless of the defense lawyer's attempts to sway public opinion. Royce Casey, 18, and Jacob Delashmit, 17, were tried as adults. By pleading no contest, Casey avoided life without parole. Also, he, uh, if he were tried as a juvenile, he would have only got seven years, I'm assuming, because he would have confessed. What? Um, but he wasn't a juvenile, so that's what stopped him from only getting seven years. Uh, Jacob pled no contest to first-degree murder and received 26 years to life required to serve 85% of his sentence before qualifying for parole. It was reported by the other two that Jacob visited the corpse the most. Um, but, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. After being put away for a few years, Jacob claimed Joseph and not Slayer was the direct cause of their act. Joseph was obsessed with Elise and with killing her. That's what he states. They went to different California prisons. Uh, Royce Casey was at the R.J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, I believe. Uh, Joseph Fiorella was, Fiorella was High Desert State Prison in Susanville, and Jacob Delashment is at a correctional training facility in Soledad. Update from KSBY, California Central Coast News, um, an article from June of 2022 states that the governor made the decision to deny Royce Casey parole. However, a local superior judge reversed this decision. Charles Carbone, Casey's attorney, claims that he is a rehabilitated man. 
This came after an initial granting of parole in March of 2021, followed by a reversal of that decision, and this was due to San Luis Obispo County's DA, Dan Dow, sending a letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom asking him to reverse the board's decision. Um, So last July 9th, it was reversed. Let me go to my source here. I'm going to read straight from the thing. It says... On July 9th, 2021, Governor Newsom reversed the parole. I have determined that Mr. Casey must do additional work to deepen his insight into the causative factors of his crime and coping skills before he can safely be released on parole, Governor Newsom said in the Indeterminate Sentence Parole Release Review. Royce Casey's legal team, led by Charles Carbone, appealed this decision through a document called Writ of Habeas Corpus. Because of the crime, not because of who Royce is today, the governor opposed the release, and that is just not in accord with the law, explained Carbone. Royce Casey isn't serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Obviously, he is serving one with the possibility of parole. On June 6, 2022, San Luis Obispo County Superior Judge uh, Court Judge Craig Van Ruin granted Casey's petition. After a review of the record, the court cannot find evidence to support the governor's decision and therefore grants the requested relief that reinstates the board's grant of parole, said Judge Van Ruin in the court in the order granting petition for writ of habeas corpus. The case probably wouldn't even have been solved or likely would have gone unsolved without Royce coming forward very early on in the case, Carbone said. Casey's attorneys say he has turned his life around behind bars. He hasn't committed any further crimes. He's educating himself. He's developed marketable skills, and he has profound remorse and regret and shame. He counsels and mentors other prisoners inside, Carbone added. He is an exceptional person. His crime is forever forever deplorable, but he is not as a human being that same child that he once was when he committed that crime 27 years ago. San Luis Obispo. I know, because, I mean, we can't have her back, you know, so I'm sure that's frustrating, but it is very surprising as you will come to see how the parents feel about it. Um, San Luis Obispo County District Attorney Dan Dow disagrees with the outcome. While we respect the decision of Judge Van Ruin, we are disappointed with the effect of the order, Dow said. We agree with the governor's finding that Mr. Casey needs to demonstrate additional insight into the causative factors of his crime and coping skills before he can safely be released. As for Paler's family, her death will continue to bring pain, but they are not opposing his release. The family is prepared for Royce to be paroled. They know it is going to happen at some point. For the most part, the family is at peace with the decision. Royce has been generally an honor inmate. He's really tried to reform his life and make better for himself. Generally, there is no unanimity, but the the family has accepted it. According to Carbone, the California Attorney General's office has 60 days to appeal this decision. If they decide not to, then a parole date will be set for Casey. Attorney Alan Hutkin said the Paler family strongly opposes any type of parole for Jacob Delashman and Joe Fiorella. So the family is opposed to the other two getting out, but not him. I guess it is true. I mean, they took eight months and they didn't find her and she was only like nine miles away from her house. Yeah. That's kind of shocking and very sad. But Um, that's, there's a lot of cases that they're like close by. Uh, So back to my notes, the... The Paler family have not been reimbursed in any way for the crimes committed against their daughter. Although justice was served to those boys, it doesn't seem right. Her younger siblings and parents suffered a great loss that changed their family forever. The depression caused her parents to become reclusives and even cost them their home due to not working. Um, 
the dad, he, uh, David, he changed career paths. It was a whole thing. So in 2017, the DA office filed a motion for reimbursement. The state victims compensation board paid $34,871 to the Palers for funeral and counseling costs. The office also wanted additional restitution on the loss of wages to Elise's father, David. Uh, David Poller was involved in a road rage incident in 2014 that triggered his PTSD. He was cut off and followed the car to a nearby parking lot where he opened the person's door and pulled the driver out by his shirt. He was charged with battery, but that was dismissed. He received probation and had to pay a $500 fine and was ordered to take anger management classes. Despite this, he claims he forgives Casey and didn't have bad things to say about his potential release. Her father believes he could have saved her that night uh, when she abruptly chose to go to bed after that phone call. He said the look in her eyes felt off. He said he should have gone and checked the back door and made sure she was still in her room. Which, who doesn't wish that they had acted differently after something like this? It's so sad. But if he had noticed her gone, she didn't have a cell phone or anything, and he couldn't have known where she was, you know? Yeah. At the same time, he could have had called the cops by then, and they might have found her before they got done doing what they were going to do. Who knows? But that's unfortunate that he feels that way. Very sad. Um, Casey claims that he became violent because his friends were violent, and they were that way, and he believed what they did uh, to feel included and in a safe place by doing and thinking the way they did. Three months later, after the murder, he had a journal entry about being allied with the dark side, but then went on to feel guilty about what he had been a part of. So that switch happened within a few months. Delashment blamed the music, and then he blamed Joseph for the crime, but it boiled down to the fear of rejection from a girl. It seems the crime was sexually motivated, a lot of experts say. Viriola, Viriola, I can't say it, F-I-O-R-E-L-L-A, Viriola, Viriela, Viriela. Anyways, Joseph, Jesus, Joseph admitted that he may have just wanted to kill, nothing to do with being better at music at all. Although none blamed the drug use, it was bound to have had affected them. They were, you know, uh, underdeveloped. Duh. Why would you not blame the drug use? Right? It's just interesting that throughout the trial and in court, they blamed Slayer and, like, all that other yeah, stuff. Yeah, like, they that's didn't connect dumb, the dots. I know. shit. Uh, so adults would be able to tell, like, that using meth at age 14 could definitely alter your reality, as well as LSD and whatever else they were doing, but... um. It all got to his head, and he just decided to use that as an excuse. Uh, Although none blamed the drug use, it was bound to have had effect on them. Elise was a wonderful and beautiful girl, and she was killed for selfish, demented reasons. No reason at all, really. She was buried at Oak Hill Cemetery in Ballard, Santa Barbara County, California. After her murder, there was a small shrine in the eucalyptus grove with photos of Elise and a prayer from her grandmother, placed with some begonias and irises and uh, a wooden cross tacked to a sapling. Her classmates and school staff remembered her and left messages on this message board dedicated to her. And I was going to read from that right now. The principal said in one of my articles that I read, it's like this open wound that you think is healed and then it's torn open again, said Tim Baird, the principal of Arroyo Grande High School. So let's read what her classmates say. It's on fallenclassmates.com, and Melinda Collins says, So tragic. What a loss. This is beyond tragic. Rest in peace, beautiful soul. This was a very good friend of my sister's. She named my niece after Elise. 
I think she would like to know people are still remembering her. Tracy Morissette says, not sure my sister has ever gotten over this. What a beautiful girl. Brandy says, I'm so sorry for your loss. Teresa says, I did not know her. I just watched the Bill show and it was a very sad story. It's unfortunate there are some people who do worship the devil. I too had a son murdered. He was 23 years old and shot 23 times. May God continue to repair y'all's broken heart. Um, Mitch Flores says, I knew Elise having a couple of classes with her at Arroyo Grande High School. I have never forgotten about this tragedy regarding such a young, beautiful life. Elise was always happy and such a positive person to be around. It sickened me to my stomach to this very day that I also knew the three scums that did this to her. I also had class with Jacob and Joseph. I spoke to Joseph several times in class. This tragedy has struck hard and now being 32, I have never forgotten it. RIP Elise, nobody can hurt you now. Mercedes responded to this by saying, I was with her the night before she went missing. I was friends with two of them and personally asked them where she was. She had let me know that they had tried to assault her before, and I told her to keep her distance from them. I found out the next morning I would never see my friend again when a police detective called me early the next morning. I knew right off those assholes did something. Leo responded to that by saying, I remember her telling me some guys pushed her into a ditch near her bus stop. I talked to her right before she snuck out of her house to go meet up with the three that killed her. I talked to her all the time, but that night she sounded angry. I called. I feel so sorry for her parents. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So uh, Alicia says, hi, Elise. It's 2015, and I was thinking of our class and all the classmates that are up and what they're up to this year. I couldn't go by without leaving a comment. I remember when we played soccer together. My dad was a coach. I know it's not it's important time of the year when you passed or your family wouldn't have had your soccer picture with our jersey on your gallery. I heard of your death and I'm sorry. I remember those guys from school and it was so sad to know I knew all of you in the most awkward way. Anyhow, God bless Elise and take care. Love love a classmate and a soccer friend from class of 1998. Very sad. So that concludes that part of it. Okay, so that was the case of Elise Paler. That was sad. Wasn't it? The fuck? <sighs> yeah, very disgusting. And um, like I said, I mean, it wasn't really like a satanic panic type of thing, but it did mm-hmm. have a lot of parents up in arms about what their kids were listening to. And um, in the 80s and 90s, we know that it was a big deal. And, you know, the West Memphis Three – we have no idea if they committed that crime and they went to prison because of the music they listened to and their beliefs and whatever. Um, yeah. Then that brings me to a little bit of a brighter side, which is completely fictional. So sorry for tying this in, but I just finished Stranger Things. And if anybody has seen Stranger Things season four, we can see how they tied in kind of a satanic panic aspect. Yeah, everyone of that was time against the Hellfire, Hellfire Club. Club. Uh, man, it's rough, but, uh, shout out to stranger things. Cause man, that, that season, they really did. I was getting a little worried there. Season. I hadn't, I hadn't finished. I hadn't finished three. I got lost interest in season three Weird. at the beginning. Same. And then I rewatched it and I was like, okay, now it's picking back up towards the end of season three and got me excited for four. And then I just blazed right through the rest of that. But yep. it definitely man, is a favorite hits you in the feels. Hits you in the feels for sure. Yep, and the soundtrack, sure Jesus, you cannot go wrong with that soundtrack. Anywho, another interesting thing about the Arroyo Grande High School was that apparently Zac Efron went there. Hey, Zac. Could you imagine? Isn't that weird? That is weird. 
Another interesting thing, I lived in that area when I was in middle school. Shut your mouth. So I would go to San Luis Obispo and go you to the outlets. Lived in and- California? Yes, that's where I met Hunter. In California? Yes, girly. I thought it was, was in San Antonio. What? In fact, in fact, I think he actually did go to an Arroyo Grande elementary school because he was in California before I got to California. And he lived in like Orchid, some little town called Orchid. And I lived in, uh, what was it called? Lompoc, which was closer to Santa Barbara than San Luis Obispo, I'm pretty sure. I, maybe I'm getting that backwards. But anyways, yeah, we had I'm home ec together. right now. We had home ec together. He was a year older than me. So then when I moved so- to San Angelo, I saw him again. How the fuck did y'all both end up in San Angelo? You're telling me, because my dad had had already retired, so we just chose to move there because our my uncles and aunts lived there. But right. um, he was his dad was still in the military, so that I guess they went over there for his job. Oh my god, that is so insane. it was weird. Yep, that's yep. nuts. It was weird. I did I not like, know hey. that. If I did, I, I, I go, forgot. I, Shit. I saw him. I saw him one of the days walking the halls, and I was like, "What the fuck?" And by the end of the day, we were waiting for the bus uh, to load up for the end of the day, and I was like, "Hey, I know you." And he was like, "Ah, what's your name again?" And I was like, "Okay, well." Oh, and the rest <laughs> is history. We all bang each other. <laughs> parents, my parents. Now you lick his this. asshole. Exactly. <laughs> Not lately. I should probably get on that. Oh no. Oh, that's so terrible that I said that, it's and that so you said funny. that. My stomach has been fucked up all day, so I can't <laughs> oh, think about things like that right now. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> licking ass. Oh, uh, that's really funny. That's wow, Abby. Damn it! I was gonna say earlier, and I completely blanked on it. But um, whenever you were talking about the movie about Jennifer's body, ah, uh-huh, yes. At the end. Well, it's not the end, but at the climax, whenever she fucking stabs her, she's like, my tit. <laughs> she's like, no, your heart. Iconic. Dude, oh seriously. God. So the other day, the dogs, that's funny. The dogs were like fucking around. Yep. I was sitting on the couch and they're all fucking riled up because I had finally finished working and I was going to go hang out with them. And they fucking ran all over Apple you, huh? punched me directly in the tit. And I was like, this is mm-hmm. perfect. I was it just, I, it just flew out like perfectly. I was like, my tit. <laughs> Before that iconic line, it was uh, Superstars. Oh, my titty. Oh, shit, dude. I haven't thought of that movie in fucking ages. That is so weird. I used to watch that all the time as a kid, but I have never watched it since I was probably like eight. That fucking movie's weird. It sure is. Sure is. But um, mm-hmm. not yeah. But yeah, that's Megan Fox or Jennifer Check rather. Her lines are just so funny. They're just so funny. She, she does them really like perfectly. And, How does she not laugh? The way that she. Like the shit that is said and the things that it she like does. Typhoon in here. Were you guys fucking? Yeah, dude. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Jeremy hates that about the movie. He thinks it's stupid uh, because of that, and it pisses me off because I love it. Damn it! It's one of my it's favorite movies. Ah, uh, yes, same. 
Thanks to you for showing it to me. I was like, I've never seen it. I knew it. I was like, this is right up her fucking alley. You shrieked. You were like, you've never seen it. I was like, well, I got excited. Here we go. It was very exciting. Um, It was good, and it's it holds up. I I like it. And guys, if you haven't seen it, and if I haven't ruined it for you by now, you should go check it out because it's pretty good. And it's not. I mean, with the ties into this horrible true crime case. That's one thing, but it's it's not as dark as it seems, which like we had learned in the trivia aspect of this episode that Diablo Cody was planning on making it darker because she's a big fan of horror. However, how she played it, it ended up working out, especially for yeah. the time period. I mean, that whole indie uh, hipster type, I don't know what to call it, but you know, I don't know Juno style Yeah, movie, the Juno style shit. The comedy, it was different. It was... It was before At the time, bad, right? it was different. Now it's annoying if someone were to do it. True. <laughs> That's true. It would never pick up again the same yeah, way. Yeah, no. Stop trying to make fetch happen. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> that time period. Iconic. Yes. Anyways. Uh, so that was that. And um, that was part two of Jennifer's Body. <laughs> uh, anything the surface. else? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Flounder. Shark. Oh, he's great. Do you think they... Oh, wait, they did. Didn't they make a live action? Or are they still working on that? They're still working on it. Interesting. Who's going to play Flounder? If they get rid of him like they did Mushu, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to work, man. I don't know. That whole thing is going to be weird. (laughs) (laughs) Live action... Like, The Lion King was boring as fuck. Damn. I'm glad you said that because I haven't finished that. Yeah, it's boring. It's and it's because they don't. It's like I'm watching a National Geographic's. Like they True. don't have emotion. Like and the only There's way no animals are like entertaining to watch is if mm-hmm. they are cartoons. You know what I mean? Right, because they can add more sparkle with the animation. Yes, or if there's someone fucking narrating it that has a fucking British accent and you're high as fuck. Like, right. That's oh goodness, way. right. Yeah, there's no in-between. There's no, like, a little bit of singing. Yeah, and and there was some singing, and it was just weird. Beyonce? And and it was, like, they didn't change but, like, two things. And I was, like, what? What is happening? Mm -hmm. It didn't – everyone, like, complains that they fucking change all these remakes or all the fucking reimaginings or whatever. They get pissed that they change a lot of stuff, and it's, like – I don't want to fucking see the same fucking thing again, just live action. Like, yeah, exactly. I've already exactly. seen the goddamn thing. I don't care to see it in the just in a different fucking format. Like, shut the fuck I up. I agree. So that's what I it think was. The like. last, what's the last one I saw? All the way was Aladdin because I had to. I had to watch it all the way because I was at the movie theater. So <laughs> that was pretty good. It was okay. They they made it work. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I really liked the songs in there me too and i mean a lot of people hated that they like pretty much made her a feminist but that was the other I don't know big why difference they, I don't know, people are weird but <sighs> uh, well we in that same way <laughs> but in that same way it'll tie back to the feminist argument uh where say you know elise could have been rewritten to come back from the dead and fucking take revenge on men maybe that's you know? what ep- or season Cody two was doing <laughs> Um, that's what the sequel could have been about there you go but needy at the end she killed him yeah she killed him no she 
I'm going to ruin it. I'm sorry. I'm going to spoil the ending. So if you don't want to know, then don't listen. But <laughs> whenever Needy gains the powers. Oh, that's right. Because she killed her, the killers. Yes. Right? I'm wondering, though, if like if they would have done like a sequel and it would have been like Needy, like going around, like finding there all these go. other bitches that have been like turned yes. into demons and that she like kills them with her powers. That would be sick. See, they could have done it. They, there still is time. Guys, please go uh, review the movie so that everybody's back on board that they I just, love this movie so they can put more work into the second But part. I just don't want to, I don't want to watch it if Needy's going to be like, a badass and then all of a sudden like as she's like killing someone she's like you smell like pie balls or something stupid i like, get it yeah like tie in the humor yeah the don't. recent dark humor have you seen ready ready or not no i don't think so let me think is that the else. where they play tag inside they are dinner? trying to kill her yeah yeah, on yeah. Her wedding. no i haven't yeah seen that. Okay, that that's the dark humor of today where like it would make me laugh. So they would have to tie in like what the modern way of dark humor like, Yeah, because that now. fucking late 2000s Right. Shit. I mean, they can't make Needy be a teenager forever or whatever anyway. Oh, so word. they would have to like age it a little. Yeah, um They'd have to tweak it a lot. I could but, see yeah. it though. I could def- I could definitely see Needy either looking for other Jennifers or looking for other uh, bands that are doing that same oh, shit. Oh, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, she And then does killing kill them. them. Yeah. A cool thing, uh, because I had to go searching for the scene after they killed Jennifer, a cool thing about about the movie that I just remembered was when he throws the knife into the devil's kettle, like, oh, and it comes back up on thing. the side of the road. At the end, yeah, she finds out, like, oh, this is where the, all the shit comes out. Yeah. That they throw down there. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Because I completely forgot about that, but she ends up finding... So does she kill them with that same knife then? I think so. No wonder she's got the powers. I think she does. Pretty cool. Well, that brings us full circle from beginning to end of Jennifer's Body, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. It's September 1st, and pumpkin spice is back, so go grab those. I had a cold brew this morning with the pumpkin spice foam. I think I'm going to do that tomorrow, actually. Treat yourself. Treat myself. For that boob injury. There's so many lines. I, I probably could do this forever. Mm-hmm. Which, that hurts. I couldn't even go to Flags the next day. I had to sit on a bag of frozen peas. <laughs> Shout out Chris Pratt. Wonder how old he was in that uh, movie. Yeah, Golly. He dies, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. In the fire. I'm pretty sure. Isn't he the first? No, Ahmed, the guy that uh, she was like, does your host family know you yeah. made it out? Mm-hmm. He's the first. And then the nice guy who is crying in the field or whatever. Oh, yeah. So he doesn't die, I don't think. I don't think Chris Pratt dies at all. He's gonna I thought become he a died over. in the fire, like at the bar. Oh, maybe he did. That would that would suck because he was going to be a cop. Oh, well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I meant to ask you: Do you think the fire was part of the whole thing that was supposed to happen? Because if people just went missing from the bar that burned down, they wouldn't have noticed, you know. Like you her being are a- correct. I don't know. Now that you've said that, but the way he looks at the fire, he knew like it was supposed to happen. I don't know. He looks at it kind of like surprised, but then he's like, <laughs> 
he doesn't react the way you're supposed no. to. You know what I mean? He's like, you're you're just in shock. Drink some of this. You want to come yeah, back to my and then he's like, this is a perfect – I don't know. It could have been, but I don't know. And then also how she goes into that trance where she's not even listening to Needy. Like, is she's she in shock? literally in shock. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. But it's- maybe the drink that he gave her could have been something. But she no, was already she does like panic. in a weird trance in the middle of the performance too. So maybe their music was meant to like. Was it a weird trance, or was she? Was it the penis? Was it the dick? She was just yeah. Maybe that is it. Entranced hmm. by a penis. Only Diablo Cody would know. And then the fire was it by chance, or was it meant to happen? Because yeah, mm-hmm. when there's a big chaotic thing like that, no one's gonna know. Like if Jennifer went missing, because she was supposed to die, you know. Yeah. Only Needy would have known, and I'm surprised that he left. With Jennifer, after having that confrontation with Needy, because Needy would have obviously reported right. that. That's weird. Anyways, that is one thing I don't get. But anywho, um, love that movie. All right, guys, let us know what you think. I'm going to be posting some stuff to the Instagram about this episode. Make sure you go check it out over on G-I-M-M-E, The Creeps, on Twitter, on Instagram, and now on TikTok. Make sure you leave us a review on any platform that allows you to and tell your family and friends about us. Thanks, guys. So did we give you the creeps?